Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Catherine May and welcome to The Wintering Sessions, the podcast that sets out to learn from the times when life is frozen. This week I'm talking to Michelle Adams, author of Little Wishes, Between the Lies and My Sister, who talks about the terrifying ways that life can suddenly change and how vital your support network becomes in those times. Right, should we start? We might as well yes, just jump in. Yes, lovely to talk to you again. <laughs> yeah, great to talk to you. Um, so we actually, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because we recorded your podcast the other way around last week. So now the yeah. tables are turned, Michelle. <laughs> I've become the interviewee. <laughs> I know, it's scary. <laughs> it's, it's actually a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? It's easier to be the interview and any sort of podcast that I did over publication week it's just so easy there's no preparation involved you don't have to worry about post-production you just <laughs> log in have a chat and that's it but um being the host is a lot more effort so thank you very much for inviting me <laughs> <laughs> I think podcasts are like my favorite kind of publicity to do I've been doing loads for my book lately yes yes and don't you just love podcasts they are so relaxing you just it's, have a chat yeah it's really easy and you don't think over what you're saying in the same way so like if you're doing mm. a written interview you'll go over that paragraph you know maybe four or five oh. times to make sure that you've not yeah. written a typo or that you've not said something incorrect whereas just having a chat with someone it comes out so much more naturally somebody wanted to be interview last week and said should I send you the questions or do you want to just have a chat on video <laughs> video 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 <laughs> all the way <laughs> 
I know. I, the way that I agonise over written interviews is just hilarious. Yeah. You feel like you've got to say yeah. something profound. Absolutely. <laughs> and and every every little paragraph has to sort of be um, introduced and surmised in sort of a an appropriate <laughs> little arc, as if, <laughs> as if it's very deep. It's actually, it's just the special way of torturing writers, I think. Absolutely, <laughs> definitely. Pushes all our buttons. <laughs> 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 right. So, well, let's let's talk about the wintering period in your life that you proposed to me, actually, because I thought that maybe we'd talk about the lovely essay you wrote for The Best Most Awful Job, which was the anthology I edited about motherhood last year. But you said, no, 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 I've got something I really want to talk about. And I think probably it's quite relevant to what a lot of people have been going through this year in that it was a very sudden illness, wasn't it? It was. I mean, when we broached the idea of me talking about a wintering session in Mm. my life, um, I think a lot of people assume that the adoption process feels like that. And I suppose there are elements of it that are difficult, but Mm. I I can't really describe it as a wintering period. It it wasn't immensely difficult. It was challenging to wait Mm. and it was difficult, but I wouldn't say that I found it painful. Whereas the topic that I suggested talking about when I was ill, very suddenly, that was absolutely how I would see a wintering period. That's really interesting. So like set this up for me, how, I mean, obviously I was going to say what what happened, but (laughs) but actually the, what were you doing on the day that you suddenly fell ill? Well, what I was doing on the day was visiting a friend, Um, but it's worth going back a few weeks before that um, to start with, because I had been going through, in Cyprus, when you move into a different place, you're suddenly exposed to all sorts of different things that you're not exposed to in your home country. And the one Mm. thing that really sort of struck me quite hard when I moved to Cyprus is the allergy season, because there were suddenly all sorts of things that I was exposed to that that I hadn't had a problem with before. Right. So I was going through, um, I think it was March time. Um, a really bad allergy season where I had a lot of sinusitis, I couldn't breathe properly, um, and I'd been to see an ENT specialist and they prescribed some steroids as a spray in my nose, which is a very mm. standard thing. And it hadn't particularly helped. I still had really bad sinusitis. And um, I also have a broken nose, which I don't know how I did, but we discovered that at the time. <laughs> and there was, there was some sort of theory that perhaps an operation to strain it up would be a good idea. And so we were going through this sort of steroid Um, treatment as a spray in order to try to get to the point where we could potentially operate. Mm. And three weeks after taking the steroid spray, I woke up very early one morning with intense pain in my head and in my eye, which I don't really know whether it was associated, but in hindsight, I think that it was. And it was I guess what a lot of people would describe as a cluster headache. Mm. I was on the floor. I, I've never really had migraines, so I don't really know what that's like. But I was on the floor. I couldn't move. I was being sick. I had a pain in my eye. I ended up going to the hospital and having some morphine, and that cleared it. They said, okay, you've probably got really bad sinusitis still, and that's affected it. Mm. And um, we need to just sort of up the ante a little bit with what medication we're giving to you. And so they started me on a series of oral steroids which I took for five days and on day five I was ill I was going to a baby shower um, along with my stepdaughter who was about I think she was probably about seven at the time and we Mm. drove in the car for around about sort of 45 minutes to an hour and I dropped her off at my friend's house 
in order to go and then see another friend very briefly for a quick coffee because I hadn't seen her for a long time. And when I got out of the car at the cafe, my foot was numb. And wow. it was it was sort of like, you know, if you've been driving on a motorway for a long time and your foot goes to sleep. Yeah, I, sure. I, sort of, I got out of the car and laughed at myself like, oh, my God, I got so pathetic since I've moved to Cyprus. You know, I used to be able to drive <laughs> four hours on the M6 and it was fine. I can't drive for an hour. And, <laughs> and my foot's numb. Went into the cafe, ordered my drink, and sat down at the table. And when I came to pick up my coffee, I realized that my fingers were numb as well. And I thought that doesn't seem very good. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And slowly over sort of over, I think it was probably about 20, 30 minutes, the numb foot began in my fingers and then my arm. And slowly the whole right side of my body just became very numb. And I became very confused and right. my friend said to me, are you okay? You know, you don't look very well. Do you want me to call your husband? He was my fiance at the time. And I said, no, 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 don't call him. And I, and I don't know why in my head I thought that this was a good idea, but I think I realized that there was something wrong with me. And I just said, no, I'm going to be okay. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to get home, which was a really bad idea because it was like an hour's drive. Oh gosh, yeah, you drove yourself home. In my head, I was thinking, I just, I need to get home because there's, there's something not right here. Um, but within sort of, you know, a, a few more minutes, it became evident that there was no chance of that happening. And she said, I'm, I'm going to call Stasinos, your husband. And by the time that I spoke to him on the telephone, he he asked me, you know, what's wrong with you? And I said, I, I don't know. And he said, can you tell me where you live? And it was the first question where I, I realized I couldn't give the answer. I, I didn't know where I was and I couldn't say what my name was. Oh my goodness. Do you remember now him asking you that question or is that I something do, that you know? I do. I remember at that point. I And I remember also, it was a, it was a really weird thing because I realised that I couldn't give the answer, but I was also conscious of the fact that I couldn't give the answer. So there wasn't, I wasn't mm. confused about it. I realised I can't give him really simple information about myself. And that in itself was very mm. scary because sort of internally, I, I still felt very conscious of what was going on. Although in hindsight, probably I wasn't because I don't remember very much after it. But at that time, I remember him saying, can you tell me your name and where you live? And I, and I couldn't do that. Wow. Wow. So what happened after that? Well, because I was in a different city, I went to the local hospital there with my friend and my husband started coming mm-hmm. um, from the city that we live in. But in the meantime, he asked he asked his brother who lives in that city where I was visiting to go to the hospital because I wasn't well. And I don't know when he arrived, but he must have arrived some 15 or 20 minutes later. And I remember seeing his face and him looking at me and I sort of realized, oh, I'm really like this. I don't look well. And then I became aware that there was sort of a heaviness on the right side of my face. And I I had been working in the NHS before that for about 12 years in cardiology. Mm. And so although I wasn't involved in um, directly with the sort of the patients who had strokes and things, we did have like quite a close link with that ward. And I remember thinking my face has got a weakness to it. And that was the time then I thought I'm having a stroke. How old were you? I must have been 32, 33. Yeah. So that's not the age you expect to be having a stroke in general. It's not. It's not the age you expect to have a stroke. And um, I you know, I had no risk factors for having a stroke. But I, I was aware that I'd seen people 
you know, all through my working life with these weak, droopy faces, but mm. never anticipated that that would be something that you could actually feel. I could feel my face had sort of fallen and I wow. kept touching it and I could feel that my lips had dropped and that my eye had dropped. And after that, I don't remember anything with much clarity. I remember mm. my husband being there at some point and asking questions. I remember them being upset in the beginning. They, they tried to say that I was either having a panic attack or that I had taken some sort of drug, which neither were true. Yeah, yeah. And my uh, my husband's a doctor. And so when he arrived, he sort of, he immediately sort of tried to go into work mode, which is not very easy, I think, when you're sort of emotionally very charged mm. by somebody that you love being ill. Uh, but because they seemed to be focused on the fact that I was just a, you know, silly young girl having a panic attack and that didn't need to be taken very seriously. He found one of his colleagues who then got neurology involved and they very quickly sort of escalated things. And they made the decision that either I was having a stroke or I had some sort of compression from a tumor that had happened very acutely, or there was some sort of hemorrhage or something going on. And they were planning to prep for surgery. That was the sort of, that was the idea. And in the meantime, they needed to do things like um, a lumbar puncture, an MRI, I think I had a CT angiogram. And this is, this is all across sort of like, I think about 10 or 12 hours. My goodness. Until around midnight. And at midnight, the results all came back and there was nothing wrong with me. They couldn't find anything wrong with me. So I ended up then by that point, I I'd sort of, my heart rate had been dropping. Um, and so they'd intubated me and I was going to the intensive care unit um, on a ventilator, but nobody had any clue what was wrong with me. I just couldn't tell you who I was. I looked like I was having a stroke, but there was no evidence of anything. Gosh, that's just terrifying. And like the, the speed at which that's all happening and you're at the centre of this flurry of medical activity, you must have been so grateful for your husband and his knowledge. I mean, what would have happened to you without it? Well, I was. I wasn't at the time because obviously I didn't really have much of a clue what was happening. Mm. I do remember sort of flashes of the day. I remember my sister-in-law being there and her sort of trying to be really, really reassuring. I remember my friend being there and being really upset and I sort of remember my husband being there on and off. And I remember at one point being angry with him, like, where is he? Like, what's he doing? <laughs> <laughs> but actually, you know, he was running around trying to get stuff organized and, and get things mm-hmm. moving. But by the end of the day, you know, he was he was sort of in a bit of a mess, really, because uh, as a doctor, I think you always looking to answer a question. And the question was, yeah, what's happened to Michelle? And nobody knew what had happened to me. And by that point, I had exhibited really strange behaviours as well. You know, like I had, um, I had tried to bite the doctor at one point. They tried to, they tried to, <laughs> they tried to hold me down in order to do CT, and I just fought like crazy. And the mm. next day, the doctor who had, had sort of taken charge, he said to me, "If it was a few hundred years ago, we'd have burnt you at the stake. You were, you were not, you were not behaving in the way that we wanted you to." But presumably, I mean, you know, even if you don't remember it, some kind of like survival instincts kicking in and you're fighting for your life. You know, you don't know what these people are up to. Yeah, I I remember being I remember being intensely scared. And one of the thoughts that kept running through my head was that I'm having a stroke. And after this, I might not be able to walk again. And I'm getting married Mm. in three months. Like I'm not going to be able to walk down the aisle. And that became very important to me at the time. But there came a point at some point during the evening before they 
um, anesthetized me that I just I'd sort of given up. I was exhausted and I was flat and, and I didn't have any energy left for anything. It's, it's, I'm really fascinated by the state of mind that happens at those most desperate moments of, of ill health. I mean, because I collapsed with sunstroke once and I can really just it's I actually can remember the kind of clarity before I kind of lost consciousness. Yeah. I remember I remember like this moment of sinking towards the ground very slowly thinking. Yeah. Oh, I can't stay upright. You know, it's yeah, it yeah. quite a peculiar. And my husband was assaulted when he was um, eighteen by oh. a group of lads with fence posts hit him around <gasps> the head. With yeah, he was very badly beaten. And he remembers this moment again before he lost consciousness of kind of complete clarity of thinking, right? I've got to lay still because then they'll think I'm dead. Yeah. And but he also remembers this moment of intense kind of regret for not having lived his life yet. And and you know. There's this kind of crystalline clarity there, even though there's a lack of command between your mind and your body almost. It's really interesting to hear you talk about it too. There's some sort of common response there that it's hard to understand from the outside, really, I think. Yeah, I think in a moment like that, irrespective of whatever illness it is or whatever incident has happened, like your husband and, Mm -hmm. and you experienced as well, I think sort of you just... It's almost like all of your other concerns just disappear. And the only thing that matters is the exact thing that's happening at that moment. Yeah. We'll be back with more from Michelle Adams in a moment. But I just wanted to let you know that I'll be releasing some new dates for my writing courses soon, as well as some brand new online workshops for people who want to explore the concept of wintering a little more. If you'd like to be the first to know, go to katherine-may.com forward slash newsletters and click the link that's right for you. I promise not to spam you and I'll keep your information safe. And now back to Michelle Adams. So, wow, I mean, presumably you just woke up again at some point. Yeah, I, I woke up the following day seven or eight hours after I'd arrived on the intensive care unit. And Mm. I woke up without much of a a knowledge of where I was or what had happened the day before. And so my first thought when I woke up was, where am I and what's going on? And I started to sort of investigate. I very quickly realised that I was in a hospital and I found that I'd got wires on my chest from yeah ECG electrodes. And then mm-hmm. I, I moved down further and further and further until <laughs> the point when I realised I'd been catheterised. And mm-hmm. at which point I just became absolutely livid because in my head I was saying to myself, I'm 32, 33 years old. And they've mm-hmm. catheterised me. That's like what you do for an old lady. And I flung the sheets off me. I tried to pull the catheter out. I tried to get out of bed. At which point, obviously, the nurses then obviously don't come back and <laughs> settle me back down. You had form by then. <laughs> I had form. Um, and so they settled me back down and I went back to sleep. But this went on and on and on all morning. Every time I woke up, I was going through the same thing. I'm like, what am I being catheterized? And I try and pull it out and I try and be out of bed again. But at some point, I remember my husband arriving and he said, my family are here and they want to see you. But Michelle, you're naked. You've got to stay under the sheets. And it was the first (laughs) moment of clarity that I thought, right, this is my father-in-law coming in now. I really need to like stay under the sheets. And that was a sort of reassuring moment that, okay, I'm I'm sort of, I'm back a little bit now. I, I know that this is not 
appropriate mm. and I can start to sort of control my behavior again. Mm. And after a time, they, they sent me back to the ward. Um, and I was in hospital for about five or six days, I think. And all through that period, they'd been giving me intravenous antibiotics because they still didn't really know what was wrong with me. And I think that they were concerned that I'd had some sort of like viral meningitis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, they didn't really have a definitive diagnosis other than, you know, sort of a presentation of what I had shown them, which was that mm. I, had, for a time, had neurological symptoms and had appeared psychotic. That was that was all they could tell me. And they didn't know whether it was, you know, a, a virus, an encephalopathy. Mm. They had no clue. But slowly over the five days, I sort of, it was a slow process, but slowly by sort of five days, I was I, I could understand that I was myself again. I, I, yeah. I wasn't yeah. confused in the way that I had been in the immediate days after the incident. And they let me go home. And that was, that's the most you ever knew about it. So did you ever get to the bottom of what had happened? Well, we got to what is probably the most likely diagnosis is that I had a seizure mm. as a result of a reaction to the medicine. That's, that's what they think. And that, that was shown by the, the one thing that seemed to be abnormal after it all was that I had um, changes in my EEG, right? Um, which is the, the scan that they do with the little electrodes on your head to get your brain waveforms. Mm. And they found some sort of change characteristic with like post-seizure activity. And then I had a repeat test of that for, I think, four, four weeks later, which showed mm. that those changes were resolving. So something had happened and was going back to normal. Yeah. But it was more then about sort of how it had affected us both in sort of the recovery. Um, we'd gone from both being sort of quite confident and easygoing people it, it, to two completely different people. My husband, Stasinos, is, was just sort of constantly alert to anything that I said. If I said I had a headache, it was difficult. Um, right. You know, he was sort of watching me with a hawk's eye, looking for changes. He was constantly looking at my eyes, whether one was drooping, whether one wasn't drooping, whether I was squinting, uh, which I found very hard to deal with because it was like I was under surveillance, sort of surveillance all the time. Yeah. But also my, my entire personality changed. Um, I became very anxious and scared uh, we had an office that we worked from which was about 10 minutes from our apartment where we used to live mm. and the normal um, state of affairs is that I just walk to work and walk back from work and um, obviously after this once I ended up back at work he was driving us there and uh, there and back mm. and one day he couldn't come back to pick me up and I sort of burst into floods of tears and I couldn't bring myself to go home like what what's going to happen right. and, yeah. and it was just I was so scared that something was going to happen to me or being mm. on my own that and it was sort of um it, it really sort of rippled through our life for the next uh, three or four months and even after that in like a very sort of minor way we still refer to it as sort of like the day that was really difficult. And so do you think there's been any kind of permanent effects of, of that? Did it change you in general or do you think actually you, you sort of settled down after a while? I think for me, I don't think I have been permanently bothered by it because I don't remember a lot of it. In the first few months, um, mm. I was very bothered by it and I was aware that it had been a lot more stressful for me than perhaps even I anticipated because when I went to get my hair cut they found that a huge patch at the back of my head had fallen out 
Oh, no. Which must have happened on the day. But, you know, I, I have no recollection of it, obviously. It's just it happened through the stress of uh, what was going on. Mm. Um, but I think probably affected more the people around me. Um, I think that uh, my husband found it much harder to move on from the experience than I did. Yeah, because he'd, he'd been there and, and sort of watched it all unfold. And yeah. that's scary, isn't it? When you see someone you love being really ill. I think to witness it was much harder um, in the long term than it was to go through it. Mm. Did any useful things come out of it? You know, I talked to someone the other week who talked about an illness and, and it gave them a kind of sense of resolve about how short life might be. Did it have that effect on you? It didn't, I don't think. I don't mm. think that I, I took that away with me. What I did do in the months afterwards, I found that I wanted to try to process it. And so I did then what I do for anything I want to process, which is to write about it. Mm. And um, I wrote a book that was not published um, by a publisher, which was all about the experience of a person sort of losing their mind and, and not knowing what happened to them and having sort of blanks in their almost like fugue states. Mm, mm. And I put a lot of my feelings into that book. Um, and that certainly, that certainly really helped me process it and move yeah. on. And, and I think sort of finishing that book, really, that was my, like, I, I'm drawing a line under this now. It's happened. We've experienced it. And I, I now can look back on it with, with some degree of humor. For example, in the, I think it was the day after that I'd been taken out from the intensive care unit and put on the normal ward. Mm. I was in a side room with the little toilet. And in the middle of the night, I'd got up, wheeled myself in there with my little drip stand. And a couple of minutes later, somebody's knocking the door. And this is all obviously also in my second language, um, which is another thing. I couldn't speak English when I came round, which is really bizarre because at the time I couldn't, oh, wow. I couldn't speak Greek that well either. <laughs> but uh, this lady said to me, where are you? When I was in the bathroom, where are you? And I said, <laughs> what do you mean, where am I? I'm in, I'm in, the, I'm in the toilet. And she said, no, where are you? And I sat there on the toilet thinking, what's wrong with her? Like, has she lost her mind? Like, I, I just told her I'm in the toilet. And obviously, like, what she was asking was, do you know where you are? Do you know that you're in the hospital? I could, and it, it was sort of a moment of realisation of, yeah, I'm the one that's been psychosis, psychotic here. Like, they, they want to know that I'm okay, not, not me questioning whether they know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I can I look back at on a, on a in a humorous way now that my husband even sort of seven eight years later he's still not quite there. <laughs> no, no, which is really really understandable. I think I mean I would love to talk about the book that you wrote afterwards, just because I'm really fascinated by writers' apprentice pieces that they write <laughs> before they publish. Um, yeah. <laughs> I I think that people who are trying to be writers don't realise how many of us have got one, two, three, four, five books that we wrote Absolutely. before anyone agreed to publish us. And that was our training ground, maybe? Yeah, totally. My my first book that was released by a publisher was called My Sister. Mm. But before that, I'd written six other books. Six? Um, wow. Yeah. Okay, so, wow. So My Sister was um, the first one that got picked up by an agent. Um, the first one I had written was about five years before I got an agent, I think. And I had sort of written it it was I think it was about 75,000 words I was very happy that I'd written a book very celebratory and had no idea what it meant to edit a book and so yeah. I very happily finished my draft and sent it off to agents and was rejected you know a thousand times 
<laughs> I, I couldn't understand why, you know, I thought all it, all you need to do is write a book. Of course, you know, I finished it. Why don't they want it? <laughs> you know, ridiculous. I have, it's like, guys, I have written a book. <laughs> <laughs> this has taken me four months to write this book. Um, but I realized, you know, after that, that, you know, it needed more work. And so I just focused on writing another book and trying to sort of hone my craft. And I didn't try to get an agent after that. I don't know whether that was because I was burnt from the experience of not getting on the first time or whether mm. it was because I'd emigrated. And back then it was sort of, must have been 2011. It wasn't quite as easy to submit by email. Everything was letter. Right. And um, I thought it, it's going to be too difficult from here. Maybe that, you know, maybe that ship has sailed. But I had written another, well, after that, I'd written the six books in, in Before My Sister. And it wasn't until I'd written My Sister that I sort of looked at it. Oh, I was ready to go self-publishing. All of my books were self-published until then. So I was ready to go with it again. I had a cover written, uh, a cover made up. It was called Firstborn. Um, I was ready to hit publish. And I happened to have a conversation with another um aspiring writer for want of a better word mm. and said I'm I'm going to start looking for an agent and I sort of um, sat back and thought why why am I not trying anymore and so then I, I set about um, trying to find an agent and was very fortunate to find representation and a subsequent deal. That's really it's I think it's just such a good story to tell because I think very few people realise the a sheer length of time that loads of us work on being writers before yeah. like anything happens at all you know and yeah. how like what resilience you need to keep going because you want to write and not for you know not because anyone's paying you any damned attention yeah <laughs> um, but the attention also is really nice like when you're first writing and someone says something nice about your work mm. it feels really good and that's so sort of inspiring it was to me anyway um yeah. that's why I started self-publishing because I thought if I can't get an agent then that's fair enough but that doesn't mean that what I'm writing is necessarily rubbish and maybe somebody would enjoy it so mm. I started putting them on Amazon and I took it very seriously I mean at one point I had no intention of trying to find an agent. I was, I had a designer, she did my covers for me, found an editor and was working to try to make my work better. And I was really enjoying the whole process of like trying to sort of do it myself. So I think the whole area of self-publishing, like it used to have sort of a Oh my goodness, it's yeah. Bad name, but I don't think that's the case anymore. And I and I really think anyone who's writing, even if you want to find an agent at some point, even if, if you haven't found an agent at the stage that you're at, then Mm. the joy of having your book out there and in people's hands is really something that's really inspiring is perhaps it's so valuable it's valuable and it's encouraging is what I'm looking for mm. really affirming nice yeah affirming having someone yeah. say, I read your book and I really liked it thanks very much and that felt really really good for me and actually mm. the, the book that I'm referring to about uh, this experience it was called Psychophilia and um, Good name. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> my husband came up with that. So. Um, somebody, somebody wrote to me after that saying that it had literally sort of described their their experiences as, with mental health, and that, mm. that felt really good as well. That like yeah. I had connected with somebody else who'd been through something. Yeah, that's that connection is amazing, and I I do think that actually. So much of like mainstream traditional publishing is 
almost designed to have the writer in a passive state. It used to be that we were being coddled by the publishing industry. And I don't think that's true anymore. I don't think we're kind of coddled, but I think that there's like a passivity that remains. And I, I've i always found that quite uncomfortable, you know, like you cannot take control of your own destiny. And I I totally respect and admire the people that manage to self-publish because I think it's a it takes a particular skill set to get it right and to actually sell books in that environment. But I think like, why wouldn't you, you know? I think so. Um, and I think when when people start, they don't necessarily know what they're doing with any great sort of clarity. And I think yeah. that's the same as I wrote my first book and I sent it to an agent and it wasn't good enough. But it didn't mean that I couldn't try to do something with it. And I used that book as a learning curve. And there's mm. no doubt that the books that I self-published towards the end of my self-publishing period, they looked better. They were more professionally finished. The stories were improved. I think that there's a, there's a lot to be said for that in the terms of becoming a, a good writer. And I think actually that readers often demand different things from books than publishing professionals do. In fact, yeah. I think that's an insight that the huge success of self-publishing has given us is like how much readers love just being able to immerse themselves in genre and having a steady supply of the kind of books that they like. They're not picking up on the same stuff as people within the publishing industry are, I don't think. And there's also a very fast route to market. So if you're a, mm. a fast writer and you've written, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people who traditionally publish and they've written their book in you know 28 days. Yes, I know. Besides the editing. But if you can write your book in 28 days and you're committed to editing that book, from like the conception of the idea to having the book on Amazon and available to readers, you can have sort of three or four months and that's it. Yeah. And if you're doing that all the time, then you've got a high turnover rate and you get good visibility on the platform and um, people have access to your work. And a direct route to those readers, you know, who talk to you and say lovely things. Yeah, absolutely. Which is very encouraging when you're actually trying to find a reason to keep writing in the face of rejection. Mm. Mm, absolutely. Amazing. Oh, well, look, I just have loved talking to you today. That was such a fascinating story. I'm so glad you're so well now and I hope exactly. it never happens again. Yes. <laughs> but I, I thought it was just wonderful delving into that mind state that you were in at that time. I, I think that's just brilliant. Thank you. <sighs> Thank you. Um, And yeah, so your most recent book, tell me about it because I was just about to summarize it and that would be a bad thing to do so let, <laughs> I'm going to frame that to say so tell us all about your most recent book uh, well my most recent book I have verged away from thrillers at the moment and I wrote um, a women's fiction thriller uh, a women's fiction thriller a women's <laughs> fiction novel which is about a young couple in the late 60s in a small village in Cornwall where Elizabeth is the daughter of the local doctor and um, her family have a lot of aspirations for her future, uh, who she's going to marry and what kind of life she's going to lead. But she happens to fall in love with a local boy who doesn't have the same aspirations and who doesn't come from the kind of family that they would have hoped her future husband came from. And irrespective of their family's feelings about this, they do fall in love and uh, are seriously committed to forging a life together. But at the last minute, when they're set to tell their families that they're together, there's a tragedy in that Elizabeth's mother dies in a horrible accident. And there are a lot of things said at the time between the two families, which drive a wedge between the two young lovers. Mm. 
And they then end up on trajectories where their life takes different courses. Irrespective of that, though, their love doesn't ever die. And Tom, every year, returns to deliver a, a small gift in the shape of a blue flower, which is what he did for her on the day when they first kissed and declared their love to each other. And every year, this flower has a wish attached to it. And it's a wish for what they would be doing if they were together. And on the 50th year, Elizabeth opens the door expecting to find this little wish on her doorstep and realises that it's not there. And in a panic about what might have happened to Tom now that they're elderly, she searches for him, knowing where he was all along. And it's about their reunion and the secrets that kept them apart and about trying to have a second chance at first love. Mm. And who'd have known you're such a romantic soul given the darkness of your previous work? <laughs> I love that. It's quite a shift in, in, in genre. It really is. <laughs> and how did it, I mean, how does it feel to shift genre like that? Is there one that you prefer writing now? Or do, do you feel like you're indulging both sides of your character? I think I'm definitely indulging both sides of my character. I decided that I'd like to write this book right uh, even before one of my first thrillers had been published my my thrillers my first two thrillers had been sold and then um we had a sort of um a family thing where my father was diagnosed with lung cancer and mm. he died uh i think it was no more than sort of seven or eight weeks after his diagnosis oh, and wow. it, yeah it was a bit of a it was a bit of a sort of shocking time for us because it had been completely yeah. unanticipated but mm. it, my experience of that time and watching him with his partner and sort of how they loved each other even like right up until the last moments of his life she was just there all the time um looking after him and, and caring for him it really sort of inspired me that I had a story that I wanted to tell in that and it wasn't necessarily just about the, the sort of the bleakness of having somebody die in your family who has cancer but more about sure. focusing on the fact that even when there's no hope for anything more you can still love somebody. And that's perhaps sort of the mm. most pure form of love that there is when there is nothing to gain from it, but you love somebody any, anyway. And so I approached Maddie, our, our agent, and I said, look, I have this idea for a love story. I'm sorry that my thrillers haven't been published yet, but what do you think? And, <laughs> um, and she was really positive about it. I think that's one of the things that we're very lucky about with the person that represents us is that she's very keen mm. to um, represent your entirety as a writer rather than just sort of follow you for one book and hope that it does well. Yeah. And so I was very supported by her in in writing this book. So I finished my contracts with the, the thrillers and when I had a period of time when I had the space to do so, I then explored this women's fiction book, which has been a real joy, actually. I mean, it was a joy because it, it sort of involved my father who we'd lost very suddenly and it was, yeah. it was a nice opportunity to sort of explore my my feelings about him and the thing that we'd been through as a family. Um, mm. But also it was just really nice to write this really, I mean, it is a, it is a sad story, but I, I think it's one where it's hopeful and the focus is more on the fact that people love each other and they're trying to um, solve their problems rather than the, the dark elements we so associate with thrillers. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was a really nice experience actually. And of course we're, you know, we writers are not really just one personality you know like the idea that there's one kind of genre that 
we can only write is a complete fallacy really I think we're all passionate about loads of different things it's really and sometimes it's hard to break out and it's lovely to see that you have you know been able to expand out into more options (laughs) also one of the really positive things about if you don't have an agent trying Mm. um, self-publishing because you get to do anything and you get to explore different genres and what you like and one of the few things I hadn't explored as a self-publisher was women's fiction. So yeah, it was really nice to explore that with my agent. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Michelle, it's been an absolute joy to speak to you. Thank you so much. And um, I will make sure that all the links to your books and contacts are in the show notes so that people can look you up. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's lovely to talk to you. And that's all from us today. Thank you so much to Michelle Adams for sharing such a vulnerable moment with us. Little Wishes is available in all good bookstores and you can keep up with Michelle's news on Instagram or Twitter. Links are in the show notes. I'll be back next week with another brilliant writer who is intimate with winter. Thanks for listening. The Wintering Sessions is produced by Buddy Peace, who also composed the original title music. You can buy Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times in all good bookshops. 